Wow, I'm about to hurt tell. Okay, he's back. Been a little bit since we've seen him, but he's busy because he's one of these freelance journalists. That means they got to really, really, really hustle. Uh, but he's really good at what he does. He's also a Young Voices contributor, and he has an opinion piece in USA Today. That's a good get, my friend. We're going to talk about it. Peter Pitschke's back on Hertel. How are you, sir? Uh, doing good. Good to be here. Uh, great to have you back, my friend. You're one of those two. Like, I forget you haven't been on the show because I talked to you so much. And then it's like, oh, you weren't actually on the show. I was just talking to you. So we love keeping you in the rotation, my friend. This is a really important topic. This is a topic that we have covered a lot on this program. In fact, when I first started doing this program, this is one of the one of the first shows I wanted to do was on opioids and pain pills and abuse and all those sorts of things. It ended up being about the fifth or sixth one we did, but it was one of the very first ones. I was like, I want to cover this. And we've covered it consistently over the course of this program. This is from the top down angle though. So just kind of broad stroke this for us. The CDC, which everybody knows now after post COVID, everybody's real mm -hmm. familiar with what they do, right? Or let me rephrase that, what they're supposed to be doing. They've come out with some guidelines when it comes to opioids and pain pills and pain patients specifically. Why is this a big deal? And why did you take to USA Today to try to explain it to folks? Yeah, so the quick of it is in 2016, uh, the CDC under pressure because people are blaming uh, pain pills for the opioid crisis, which is basically an illicit fentanyl crisis. The the crossover between your, your prescription that you get your pharmacy and what people are dying of on the street. There's very little cross contamination between those groups. Anyhow, but that was the pressure. So they tried to solve with an opioids guideline, which they never done before, which basically sent a big signal out to the medical community that we do not want you prescribing opioids. It told law enforcement to come down hard on physicians and told state legislatures to start regulating more. That caused a mass wave of patient abandonment, not just in, not just pain patients, also people with cancer, palliative care, people at the end of life, also people who might need a surgery, sometimes acute care. So like if you go into the ER and you banged your head and you need uh, some hydrocodone, that would be harder to get. So they, they, we, people had been on top of them to fix this issue. It's been six years. And November, last November, they finally released their update. And some of the language is kind of positive, but as far as I can tell, it's just uh, make speak. It's not really all that serious. And in effect, this new guideline is more strict than the previous one. And from that, we are already seeing more patient abandonment people uh, reporting their pain clinics being closed, uh, being told they won't be able to get a, a, some pain medicine for when they have a surgery coming up, et cetera. And the CDC, what makes it worse is the CDC has used the language of we care about pain patients, don't um, abandon them, don't force taper them. But when you actually read the document and the evidence, this is what regulators and uh, those in public health will look at to make their decisions. It's harsher. It's not, it's not, um, it's not more free, it's more strict. And this is going to cause uh, potentially some serious damage for an issue where there's already been, you know, a, a huge iceberg hit. Yeah, Peter Pinsky joining us. All right, let's break this down because there's a couple different moving parts here. Let's start with the pain pills themselves, opioids, whatever you want to call them. Mm -hmm. They don't have any agency. They're just pills. They lay there. Okay. They're just tools. You know, I can use a hammer to build a house or I can use a hammer to kill somebody. The tool doesn't care one way or the other, right? The pain pills, the problem here is the steps that go between the medication and the patient, be that government regulation, be that the physicians, be that the pharmaceutical companies that make them. We know all three of those layers, the government bureaucracy, 
We have had some physicians that have been untoward, and we have multiple court cases about the opioid manufacturers and some of the untoward things they've done. Those are all true. How do we take that as a group, though? Because we have patients that need this medication. We have medications being abused, but there's all these steps in the middle. That's what the CDC is supposed to be stepping in and regulating, but are they? They don't seem, they want to have uh, the authority to, to make big pronouncements for how opioids should be prescribed, but they don't want to actually have to deal with the consequences of their actions. Um, and, and the pain pill question, yes, there were some doctors that ran uh, pill mills. Um, there were some people where it was diversion, but those were pretty minor in comparison to the population. You got to remember, 100 million Americans or more every year you take an opioid for whatever reason. It is a basic building block of medicine. You don't have opioids, you don't have surgery. You don't have opioids, you don't have cancer care. You don't have opioids. I mean, you name the field of medicine, it's going to be very difficult to do it if we don't have a good way to deal with the pain. Uh, otherwise, people go into shock and they die. So it's a very basic building block and a ton of people use them. But there were people that got affected that were abusing it, particularly in Appalachia. And people thought, well, if we just make it so they can't get these pain pills, they'll make them stop their addiction, right? <laughs> yeah, as if that as if that strategy has uh, has worked yet all the many years we've now been trying to do this with the war on drugs. Anyhow, what came from that was that people moved on to more deadly substances. So they went from uh, oxycodone from uh, whoever they got. Usually they got from like a loved one or a friend or they got off the street. And they went from something that was relatively safe, or at least you knew what was in it, to stuff loaded with fentanyl, which is just killing oodles of people every year. Every year you now have 100 to 150,000 people are dying from fentanyl overdoses. Those fentanyl overdoses have nothing to do with pain patients. They have nothing to do with grandma that has cancer. That's not their fault. But that's who got blamed ultimately for what was happening with the crisis. And that's where the public pressure went. And the CDC, for all their positive qualities, they're a cowardly organization. So if, even if they know they're supposed to do something that is right, if they have pressure like we saw with COVID, it, that doesn't matter. The scientific inquiry doesn't really matter. It's what is the narrative? What looks important? How do we not get people uh, yelling down our throats? And that's what they went with. And here again, with the CDC and opioids, they've chosen a situation that puts uh, patients and those that need pain medicine at risk in favor of uh, pleasing the press and politicians. Now, Peter Pischke joining us, there's a couple of definition things we need to deal with. And, you know, you just talked about opioids. They're needed. They're good medicine when properly approved. Do we have a good handle on pain? I mean, the word, because we all use it. We all know, well, okay, we know what pain is. That's everything from ouchy to I can't deal with this and you pass out. That's a wide spectrum. Do we need to have a better conversation about things like pain and distinguish that from chronic pain and pain, you know, like somebody with end-stage bone cancer, which is in mm -hmm. the most pain you can possibly be in as a human being compared to somebody that's, you know, lesser pain, that's acute pain that's going to go away in a day or two. Do we need a better discussion on that before we even get to the medication side of this? Probably. I think fundamentally that's a huge issue. I think Americans, we come from a very puritanical culture. We come from a very can-do culture. And people, when they hear pain, Americans, they don't think, oh, he has pain. That's a, that's a medical necessity. When you get on top of it, they often think, well, just tough it out. It's just pain. If you can just get through it, then there will be no adverse consequences. That's not how it works. That's how people go into shock. That's, it doesn't work that way, but that's a lot what a lot of people think. And we need to understand modern medicine, as many tricks as we have in our tool bag, we do not have a good handle on pain. We are basically using 
you know, 10th century technology to deal with the issue. And we haven't really found the silver bullet, kind of like we found um, with antibiotics to deal with infection. We don't really have that for pain yet. Maybe one day we will, maybe we will never. But we have to be honest about tools we have now and uh, adjust our policies and regulations for the population we have now and not play pretend with what might be in the future because the people are here this moment and they are suffering because you are not letting them get their basic pain prescription and they might have been a disability patient for 20 years or they might have documented end-stage cancer it's ridiculous yeah peter pitsky joining us you just mentioned it we say things i'm guilty of this too i say things like regulation guidelines things like this we blow past what they actually are this stuff has to be written down, laws, especially regulations, especially medical guidelines. The black and white really matters. And the terminology in the black and white really matters. And you get into it in your piece in USA Today is what's supposed to be guidelines. And you already mentioned it. The CDC likes to make these broad pronouncements. So they make these pronouncements and then doctors adjust to it. The, you know, the drug companies adjust to it. The patients are trying to adjust to it. Are the actual written down black and white regulations matching what they're saying? Because that's part of the problem here, too. For the most part, no. There are a few tweaks that are positive, um, and we're glad they're there. But for the most part, no. Mostly, that's the hardest part of this new guideline is when they did the presser, um, when the head of the NCIPC, who's the, that's the National Center for Injury Prevention, they're the group in charge of guidelines. When they went out there, they said, oh, we're doing this to help pain patients, you know, shouldn't ban your pain patients, et cetera, et cetera. That's the front. But then you go into the part that people actually look like, and they know this, they have all the data we do. They have, they know how all this works. And that's the part that matters. And that's the one that's two-faced. And I know many people want to give them credit for, for the tweaks they have made. And those are good, but it's, 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 you know, if the meteor is heading towards Earth and you, you knock a few chips off it, it's still a great, you know, huge ball of death coming at you. That doesn't solve the problem. And the problem is we have a massive issue of people not being able to access pain medicines and those around it for very serious issues. And that is just, that's just hurting a lot of people. The CDC know it, but the CDC don't want to take the responsibility of what it would take to undo this, or at least tell people, please knock it off. You know, there are legitimate people that need this. And that actually means you might have to change your laws or how you handle the situation. With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in business into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. Yeah, Peter Pitsky joining us, journalist, writer, a uh, good friend of the programs. You go through the numbers here, but for the audience, look, this is terminology heavy. People, you start talking about MME levels, people's eyes start rolling around. When people try to look at this in a news context, a news story, and in your piece, 
What's one of the numbers or one or two of the numbers that they need to really key on, even if they don't have the medical background, to understand what these changes mean and what should pique their interest to dig into these a little further? Yeah, I think so. The pain patient ones, while those are very important and it's flabbergasting what those numbers mean, a lot of people sometimes say, well, you know, they, they can, like I said, they can live through that. Why does it matter? So let's move past that. Let's go to something everyone agrees on. Cancer, end of life, right? There is no justifiable reason for someone that is dying that you shouldn't be able to get them some oxycodone. Okay, what, they're going to get addicted? They're going to die anyways. Okay, so everyone probably agrees on that. So what has happened to cancer patients? And here are three basic stats. Uh, it's in the article. I'll just read from it. A 2020 study from the National Center of Institute found a 21% decrease in opioid prescriptions from oncologists, which means those that are cancer doctors for patients, 21% decrease. A study in the Journal of Pain and Symptom Management found that hospice patients who had an opioid prescription when discharged dropped from 91% in 2010 to 79% in 2018. So that means less people who are at end of life are being given access to pain medicine. And here's this last one, which just blows my mind. Other research, like last year's study from the Journal of Clinical Oncology, shockingly found that the number of opioids prescribed per destinate, so those who died, on Medicare declined 38%, while the number of emergency room visits for these patients increased by over 50%. So we have a situation where even people who are at end of life, even people with cancer, we are seeing dramatic decreases in access to pain medicine. And when they are getting pain medicine, the amount is being decreased. And there, there just is no moral or scientific justification to me that makes any of that make sense. I know we can disagree about uh, addiction and you know what is necessary to fix there, but there is no justification for this stat. What, it's just crazy. It's insane. Yeah, Peter Pisky joining us. Is part of the problem here what we've already talked about? Look, CDC, no matter what its stated goal is, it's still a government bureaucracy, a very big government bureaucracy at that. Government bureaucracy is not nimble. That's not what they do. We learned that during COVID. Yep. You know, they just don't change quick. You have different kinds of medicine, palliat palliative care. You just talked about it, into life care, where the standards should probably be a little different. Emergency room care, where there's obviously going to be a need for immediate pain management so you can find out what's going on because you may have a trauma situation. I'll use myself as an example. I remember when I had my heart surgery, my cardiologist famously would walk Dr. Leonard do God bless him, love the guy, can't save my life. He walks in, he's like, I've never had a patient die of pain. You'll be okay with the pain. But he's a cardiologist. He's, you know, pain pills slows mm -hmm. down your heart. It affects your blood pressure. That's a different thing than when I see my GI doctor who's like, no, we need to manage your pain so we can find out whether you're working or not. Medicine has different components. It seems to me just on the outside reading through this material, we don't do a real good job of distinguishing between those when it comes to something like pain medicine, like palliative care should probably have a little looser regulation than maybe you know chronic care should have, than maybe emergency care should have. Is that a fair way of looking and asking and getting into some of these questions, do you think? Yes, very fair. The other problem is, is that it's... Thankfully, medicine, for the most part, our institutions are intact than, say, a lot of uh, other American institutions. But the problem with medicine is they can very much get into the regulatory bureaucracy. And if they get stuck on a bad idea, it might take them 10, 20 years to get out of it. Uh, so even though we know, for example, that what we knew about Alzheimer drugs and what causes Alzheimer's is bunk, it's still taking forever for us to get away from that. And for the people who are on the CC, I'm sure some of them feel that they did make big changes here. 
before the normal person and who these affect, these are piecemeal changes. And at the rate of change they're doing this, it's gonna take a long time for things to really switch and to get better. And while for them, it's an academic question, for the people that are living their lives who can't get pain medicine right now, that is real life, that is past academic, but medicine is not set up in such a way to be able to respond to things. This is why COVID was so, it was so hard to get rid of bad ideas or to move on from them because that's not how our medic medical uh, regulatory agencies and institutions like the AMA work. Yeah, Peter Piskey joining us. You mentioned academically, there's also a legal component to this. You talk about it in your piece in USA Today. Look, we understand that one of the problems with medicine is it's human lives and government bureaucracy and medical science and a business component all underneath a legal umbrella of liability. That's a big ball of mess to try to deal with on a good day, right? Mm -hmm. But you mentioned it here, the way they're dealing with this and these new guidelines and the way they're trying to deal with some of the prescription monitoring, and you can explain that, if you're putting prescribers or medical people in a legally tough situation, they're not going to touch it because they've already got liability out the wazoo. They already have to pay for their malpractice insurance and all this. We've seen this in other areas of regulation. If you start giving them an iffy legal situation, they're just going to stop doing it altogether to protect themselves, which is yep. understandable, right? There's a danger to that, to the prescription process, if these guidelines go through and you cover it and you just kind of lay it out. So there's like the potential legal liability for prescribers here. This could be a real, real bad issue. Yes, definitely. Human nature is to avoid risk. We, we, this goes back to our cavemen days where we, we have, we take risk and we over escalate. I can't escalate it because if we get that wrong, we're dead. So humans naturally take risk and they pump it up in their heads. For physicians, you have to remember the kind of burns they're dealing with. They're spending 45 minutes usually on paperwork per patient. They have to deal with all, like you said, the legal, uh, consequences that sometimes come with this. And if the CDC says something like, you know, yes, you have to, when you prescribe people payments, you also prescribe Narcan. For us, it's like, oh, that sounds good. Yeah, that makes sense. But for a doctor, like, so you're saying if I mess this up, that I might get, you know, uh, caught by law enforcement, I'll be in a civil suit. And that's how they work. They, they see the they see the risk. And in the United States, the, a medical tort is just humongous. So the chances of risk for these physicians, I mean, my brother is going through medical school now, residency right now. And that's a main thing they teach you. You have to be so careful, not even, it's not even an issue of treating your patient badly, but to have the appearance of mishandling it. And so when you take something like opioids and they're so politically charged um, in politics and the media and the narrative, they're not going to touch that thing with a 10-foot pole. They might be good people and they might love treating their patients, but if they, if they have most of them at the end of the day, if they have to choose between their careers and livelihood and not going to jail and their pain patient, they're picking the former, which is understandable. That doesn't make it right, but that's the situation we're in currently. Peter Pitsky, um, you talked about another thing in your piece that I think is really important to talk about. 
We've seen this in other areas of government regulation. It's been talked about a lot recently, especially post-COVID. When government does a guideline, it becomes a de facto mandate. We've seen this through COVID. We've seen this in other areas of regulation, both medical and in other things. These regulatory agencies doing guidelines, and then they get enforced as if they're mandates. Well, that's one thing when you're closing a business or doing a safety thing or something like that. When you start dealing with people's medication, this seems to me like one area where we really need to get some very specific answers on what they can and can't do, shouldn't we? Yeah. As Jeffrey Singer uh, said, I shared some of that quote. Um, when the government gives you a recommendation, that's like the mob giving you a recommendation. <laughs> it's like, yeah, we're, we're, you know, uh, we would like you to please donate. We think it would be good for your security. Yeah. No, it, it, people do not interpret that way. There isn't a way in our framework culturally or legally to do that. So pe people say, is this the law or is it not? Even if they know better, even if they're scholars or they're esteemed politicians or what have you. That's just how it works. Okay. And, and part of this, I think part of all this stuff is that we're pretending that it doesn't work like that. And then we can just make big pronouncements and make little tweaks and it'll be okay. When the actuality is people interpret these things in a very basic way and human nature is basically known. Yeah. Peter Pisky joining us. Okay. We know the numbers. You have them all throughout your piece. We're going to link to it, by the way, read the whole thing. It's got a lot of links in there too. You want to read through the links and, and go through all the stuff he lays out. If we have so many Americans that need some form of pain medication or pain treatment, here's the problem. We just saw with the speaker fight, they, nobody shut down Congress over pain pill management or the CDC. You know, we haven't had a presidential debate question on the CDC that I remember in my lifetime. This is not a front burner in the political and commentary sphere right now. But this seems like it affects so many more people than a lot of the political things we're discussing day to day. How do we get this conversation more into the daily talk when we talk about it on our social media, when folks are just talking with their family? Because, look, you're, if it's not you, you're going to have a family member that has this situation, right? Just statistically, it's going to happen. How do we individually start talking about this differently to start pushing the ball forward? Because this seems to me like one of those things that's going to be the public pushing the policy more than the policy pushing the public, right? Yes, and it, it will it'll be slow. Uh, I believe I do believe change will happen. I I hope sooner rather than later. But you're right. There isn't there isn't really any vested interest that would benefit by letting people have access to pain medicine and leaving them alone. I think for individuals, you need to if you have a story of yourself or a loved one that have been mistreated medically. You should share that story. I think if you have a chance to talk to a legislator or someone in the media and that's a concern, you should talk about to them. A big part of this is the stigma of uh, people in media. For example, when I was pitching this piece ever, I didn't think anyone would care about it. When we got through with USDA, by the way, awesome, really loved working with them. The, the outreach was crazy. The amount of people that responded, it's one of the most successful pieces I've done traffic wise. And that's because there's so many people being affected by it. So there is there is a population there. And I think if there is a bit of a, a, an illusion here that it, it isn't big and that it doesn't matter. But what happens in individual lives when you're a loved one? You know, my grandma has congestive heart failure right now. When you lose a loved one, 
when you're going through these health crises, these are some of the most meaningful and difficult episodes of your life. They mean something. And that's that's powerful. That is a powerful fact that will transcend politics or anything else. But we probably have to be a little brave in sharing their, these stories and getting it out there. All right, Peter Pischke. Let's let's zoom out for a second, though, because one of the nice things of this medium is you didn't just write the piece and put it out. There's been a lot of re- there's been a lot of response. There's been pushback. There's been corrections. There's been people talking about it. You've seen a lot of stuff move with this piece more than probably. I think you said this is the most read thing you've ever done. What is the response to this piece taught you? Give us the after the story kind of thing, because we always write it and it's like you put it out in the atmosphere and hope somebody reads it. You don't have to wonder, man, this stuff, this thing moves some numbers. What have you learned from the response that makes you think about this subject a little differently, maybe? One thing I think I've learned is that it, it crosses political borders and there are very few issues that do. No one, no one came to it as a Republican or Democrat. No one really came to it uh, from a class view or a race view. It seems to be a very, you know, there are very few things that are, the, there are these way these days for issues, but it seems to cross all divides. Um, I also learned it's much more thorough and impacting than even I quite realized. I think part of that is we've had an increase since November. Uh, a little difficult, I mean, emotionally, if I'm being honest, because so many people reached out to me on email, um, direct messages, Facebook, et cetera, telling me, thank you so much for sharing it. And then they would tell me something that happened to them or something that happened to a loved one. And that's heavy. And those are, it, it makes me a little depressed because I feel that there are just so many people who are suffering whose stories aren't being told. It, it gives me hope maybe in the sense that we will get past this because enough people are affected. Um, in, in the end, the numbers win. I think that's what we learned with the prohibition, but it, it takes time and how much time I do not know, but I pray for all of our sakes, it is much sooner rather than later. Yeah, Peter Pitsky, we're going to link to the piece. It's in USA Today. It's had a huge response. I saw a lot of real big name people on social media. What really blew me away was it was across the spectrum. It, you know, people that if they interacted with each other would not get along at all. And they were all retweeting this piece and making comments about it. That's pretty special. Um, let me ask it to you this way, though. When you get a response like that, it feels like this is an issue just begging for more attention. What do you think the next steps are? We know the CDC is a big beast. We got kind of a divided Congress. Is it going to be a local level? You mentioned in your piece, there's some like 38 state legislatures that are re- already legislatively reacting to this. Is it going to be a legislative fix at the state level? Is it going to be a policy fix in the national level? What do you think the next steps are for this subject? National could solve it, but they aren't going to take it up because they don't like doing their job on anything, let alone something unpopular. Uh, your best bet, things will change, is state-wise, and it's it, we we don't quite know because we've had some amazing laws passed the last two years. Um, there's a fantastic law in New Hampshire, Minnesota just passed a great law. There's uh, Oregon has seen some great legislation, but when those come in conflict with law enforcement, who sometimes ignore a lot of this stuff, when it comes to conflict of the state medical boards, it's hard to tell who wins. State medical boards, I think, is where we'll see the most change because I think those are fed by the physicians and they are in the medical community. And though they're sometimes slow to respond to it, it's going to catch up at some point. I think if we were going to focus on where there actually might be potential for change, it's that level. And just people being aware of this and, and making it part of, you know, their charitable efforts. You know, this is just something you kind of need to be aware of. And 
let's you know your neighbor nancy doesn't have access to her payments well you know let's bring her some soup i don't <laughs> like let's let's take care of each other and treat each other neighborly like we should for any other heavy thing and this is just another one of them yeah well you definitely hit a nerve with this piece i'm excited for you i'm glad that people are recognizing what a great writer you are and the way you can provoke thought on an important topic so well done sir you actually do mostly culture stuff though and other things you also cover disability and the opioid crisis you cover a lot of swath my friend so let folks know where they can follow you what you have going on and where they can keep up with you till we get you on hertel again yeah, it is a, it is quite eclectic. I don't know how I ended up in this position. Um, yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at Happy Warrior P. Um, I, I do write and I kind of get all over the place. You can usually find me on Google or find me on Twitter. I do a, a culture podcast, Culturescape, which is kind of fun. It's just, it's, yeah, I just pretty much do that just for me, just because I like the topic. Um, but yeah, and I appreciate you saying that. You know, I love your work, Andrew. I, it's been an honor to be able to interact with you. I wish I had better news. Like I, I like I'm glad that people are uh, gelling with this article, but th at the same time, it's like, oh shoot, <laughs> this is not good. This situation is really bad, uh, and I, I just wish it wasn't this way. Yeah, the the military term is you screw yourself into a job. So now people are going to be like, hey, write me another piece on that over and over again. But the flip side of that is it's really important and you stumbled onto something that you both care about and you are knowledgeable on and it really hit a vein. So just please keep the good work coming. Uh, Culturescape podcast, something he does as well. A lot of fun. Make sure you're following that. He's a Young Voices contributor. We're going to have him on anytime he wants to come on because he's a great writer, good reporter. Peter Pitchkey, thank you so much for the time, sir. Oh, thank you. Yes, sir. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church and Maine. Church and Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye, asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org 
or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you. Folks, you've heard of Ethan Brown on the Hurt Tell Show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom, head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. they got over 100 episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics from the vanilla to the ADHD to the international accountability to orangutan. Yes, I know, it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time, exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health, security, and everything else we care about. Feel overwhelmed, exhausted, or excluded by today's climate change discourse? This is the podcast for you. Find The Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcasts or at www.thesweatypenguin.com.